sermon outline and scripture found on pages 5 through 7 of the bulletin this morning, we come to what every commentator considers to be the high point of the first part of the gospel according to Mark. That is, the revealing of the identity of Jesus as the Christ. Ever since we've been in Sunday school, those of us who attended, we have learned the answer to the question, who is Jesus? And it's the answer that Peter gives here. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the one who has redeemed us from our sins. And that part is easy. The bigger challenge is to interact with his identity as he works in our lives. Is he really the Lord of our hearts? Does he truly guide us, or do we seek only to guide ourselves? Are his standards the ones that we stand for and uphold, or can we tweak them to suit ourselves? So we wrestle this morning not just with the easy answer, which the disciples to this point have struggled to understand, that Jesus is the Messiah, but we wrestle also with who he is and what that means as his identity is unfolding before us. We turn to Mark 8, and we read a few verses there, and then we will also in a little while turn to Matthew 16. This is God's word. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. May we pray. Soften our hearts this day, O Lord. Penetrate the coldness and the resistance that we feel, the resentment that we may have against you, the lack of understanding that may perplex us, the concerns that weigh us down. Pierce through all them all, we pray, and help us to see a clear and beautiful portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he will do in our lives. We pray in his name. Amen. 
Now it has been a long time since the first chapter when Jesus appeared on the scene and he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. There he was announcing to them the twofold aspect of what he was going to do. The kingdom of God was going to be brought in with his coming, although the people looked for a different kind of king. This kingdom was going to be based from the inside out because repentance and faith were going to be the main things and not just outward conformity or obedience uh, on the outside of the cup, as Jesus said to the, to the uh, Pharisees. So who he is has been displayed before us since chapter 1, and those of us who have been reading and know the end of the story, we haven't been wondering We've known who he was since the first part of it, since Sunday school, as I said. And yet, here we have a series of predictions that, again, will mean nothing to us because we're, we're, we're prepared to accept them, but he's not only revealed as who he is, but he's predicting his death and what kind of death it will be and, and, and his return. But we, like they, are seeing through a glass darkly. We, like the man born blind, we see, but we don't see. And there will be a transfiguration here in chapter 9, starting in verse 2, that will clearly display who he was. But he answers this question searchingly in this passage. Who do they say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Now, we can give the Sunday school answer and say that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And yet we may not be reaching the depth of his question. I continue to be amazed at how he turns the world upside down, the regular kingdoms upside down. And did you notice, I hadn't noticed since seminary, as the first time in reading through this passage that I had noticed, the unusual location of this announcement. Jesus comes out and, and de declares who he is. He obviously sets them up with the question, near the Roman capital of Caesarea Philippi, not in Jerusalem, not even in Hebron where King David ruled for seven years. He doesn't go to an ancient Israelite city and certainly not to the capital. He displays his identity in, an, in the region where the Gentiles hold sway. He is a, he is a Jew. He is the child of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the genealogies of the Messiah. And he makes the enunciation of his identity in the Gentile capital or the villages surrounding it. Astonishing. What king does that? Kings un king announced their power from places of prominence. They, they array their kingdom in such a way as to make themselves look good. But here is the lone man the one who came out of the wilderness to be baptized by John, the second Adam who was familiar with the wilderness, only instead of the, wilderness, instead of the garden he lived in a wilderness, he comes forward to be and to identify with our needs. And he does it from Caesarea Philippi, not from a Jewish city or location. So Peter responds to his questions. And he says, what by now is obvious to us and should have been obvious to them. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. But his understanding seems to be inadequate. Although it's the correct answer, it doesn't go deep enough. And that's our problem. 
For soon after Jesus responds and says, you are right, Peter pulls him aside, maybe to avoid embarrassment and say, you can't do this. Your plans are not helpful. He has a natural dread of the cross because he's seen what crucifixion can do to you. And he comes to Jesus and says, no, Lord, you can't do this. You can't uh, um, go through with what you say. It says that he began to rebuke him. Maybe he shook his finger. Maybe he raised his voice. But in some way, seeking to be somewhat polite by pulling him aside, in some way he, uh, he challenged the Savior with his agenda. What you are proposing, Peter says in so many words, is not right. shouldn't be that way. So on the one hand, he gets it right of who he is, but he also gets it wrong as to what this is to mean. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now this indeed might be that opportune time that we learned about at the end of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness when it said that the, the devil withdrew from Jesus until an opportune time. It doesn't appear that Peter is demon-possessed. But Jesus identifies his good intentions as satanic. Satanic. Now, he doesn't say that they're evil. He, he clarifies there in verse 33, he says, you, the, the problem, the, the, the reason that you appear to me to be as Satan is because you have in mind not the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You know who I am, but your apprehension of my identity does not go deep enough. You think things have to go a certain way. But if I am truly the Lord, if I am truly the God and the Messiah that you declare me to be, then I'm in control, not you. Peter, no doubt, had good intentions. But sometimes our good intentions come in conflict with his identity. I say in the outline, there are no errors more dangerous than those attributed to our worldly wisdom. We think we know these human concerns that we have and how they ought to be handled. But Jesus puts his death in the context of the wisdom of God, while Peter thinks mostly of himself. So does Peter know who he is? Not yet. Secondly, there are no dangers more threatening than the works of Satan working his way into our good intentions for Jesus. It may have been, for Jesus, it may have been yet another temptation. They say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, with good reason. Peter is on the wrong track. He's not demon-possessed. He's not absolutely overwhelmed by the presence of Satan, but it has wormed his way into his life so that his thinking has been influenced, and that's our problem. There are no dangers more threatening than the works of Satan working his way into our good intentions. Oh, we say my heart is pure, but it has to be this way. Is your zeal honoring to God or to yourself? Are your good intentions merely another way of seeking what you want? 
What was Peter thinking? We don't know. He probably was thinking something like this. Well, if he's the Messiah, then I'm one of the cabinet. I'm one of the closest associates. I'm going to, I'm going to gain from this. But if he dies, that gains me nothing. If he is removed from the scene, if he's not there to, to reign and to rule over this new kingdom that he's bringing in, then I get nothing. I'm left out. Now, this passage doesn't include a, the fullness of his response to Peter. For that, we have to turn to Matthew 16. So if you look back in your text, you'll see that I've also included Matthew 16 for further insight. Jesus replies when he says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but was by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now this is several more sermons by itself. But let's note these things as I do in the outline. Notice Jesus' response to Peter in this section in Matthew 18. What he's saying is that spiritual sight, the kind of sight that the man who had seen like trees walking, spiritual sight or insight comes from God alone. The man who was blind did not heal himself. His friends did not heal him. The only one who could heal him was the one who did heal him, and that was the Lord. Spiritual sight and insight comes from God alone, not from our wisdom. And that's Peter's point. He's, he's, he's operating out of his wisdom. This is the way I think it should go. I think this is plausible. In fact, I don't want to embarrass you by saying this in front of everybody, but we all think this. We don't want you to leave us. Don't talk about a cross and crucifixion. Let's talk about your kingdom and the ushering in of it. You are the Messiah, the one for whom the ages are waiting. And Peter, and Peter is told, get thee behind me, Satan. So spiritual sight and insight comes from God alone. And as he says, the, even the ability for Peter to acknowledge that he was the Messiah came from on high. Peter didn't figure it out as a result of working through a puzzle or long conversations with the other disciples or a close examination of the scriptures. He got this insight from God. And so does ours originate there too. Secondly, he says, despite your weaknesses and failings, I will build my church on my people as a foundation. So even though this conversation doesn't go well, and even though the condemnation of Peter is quite striking, the work will go on. In fact, your blindness, Peter, will not be a detriment at all because I'm in control here. I'm the king, and I will bring you forward. I will make you a great leader of the church. But it wasn't overnight. And just as the man with trees walking was healed in stages, so we are healed in stages. Our insight is enough for salvation, but we need to grow in our understanding. And then thirdly, the preaching of the gospel and the exercise of church discipline will be given to his people to carry out. He's going to leave. I'm leaving. He says it several times in this passage. He repeats the prediction of his death and, and his departure in the next several chapters that we'll be getting to very shortly. He's leaving. But he's leaving it to us. And down to today, God's people have been commissioned with preaching and or orchestrating, overseeing the church 
of Jesus Christ. That's how he intended it to be. He might have sent his angels. He might have allowed the apostles to have continued on indefinitely in their lives. Or he might have come himself and ruled directly. But instead he's left it to fallible people like Peter. And yet, there's a great confidence there, as we'll see. So Jesus then issues this call, which will be again issued again. First, he says, first as he endures Peter's protests and zeal, he issues a call for all disciples to be imitators of him. He announces that the cost of losing him will be added by greater burdens to be placed on his followers. Jesus does not, call his, does not begin his call with descriptions of rewards, but of costly discipleship. So what he's saying is, I'm leaving and it's going to get harder. I won't be here to walk on water and restore your confidence, to turn the water into wine and to, and to dazzle you. I won't be here to heal Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. I won't be here to directly bring Lazarus back from the dead. And moreover, I will ask you, if you want to be a part of this kingdom and follow me, I will ask of you at least two big things here. First of all, the hardest, self-denial. To give up our natural inclinations, Peter's desire to grasp and grab and say, don't go, Jesus, our affections of the flesh, so that God may live and reign in us. This is a call to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. It's not a call to asceticism or monastic living. It's a call to denying self. Self rears its head in many ways, various ways with different people. But what he will ask of us is not that we join his army by raising our hand and pledging allegiance or by taking up arms against our enemies, but that we will wage war against ourselves. That we will take on the enemy within. The flesh, the world, the devil, we will fight against these, and we will, in so doing, deny what we would ordinarily want and ordinarily desire. Self-denial. And then we must take up our cross, willingly employ our shoulders to service. It's not enough that we would lose him and not have his comforting presence. It's not enough that we would deny ourselves, but we have to then take up the burdensome work of following him. No wonder the rich young ruler turned away. No wonder many people in John 6 who were following him before no longer followed him when they began to understand this kind of king and this kind of kingdom. Luke adds in this section on this that we are to take up our cross daily. That is, there will be no end to our warfare until we leave this world. Fresh afflictions will come one after another. Yes, you're right who I am, but let me me show you who I am. My identity includes a call to costly discipleship. I want to say that at the outset, at the beginning. I want to make it extremely clear, and I will repeat it in the next several weeks and months of my earthly ministry, says Jesus. I want you to know 
No secrets, no surprises. You must involve yourself without me, physically present. By my spirit, yes, but not physically present. You must be involved in self-denial, and you must be involved in costly service. I missed that in Sunday school. I didn't understand it. I'm sure the teachers said so, but all I could think of was the resurrection and the forgiveness of sins, which was also emphasized, and the glorious good news. We have to feel the weight of this. Those who are willing to suffer death for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, they do receive life, but there is an implied mortal danger in following Jesus, which we do not often feel, but often has been experienced over the centuries by his people. A very great reward comes as well, though. So remember the surpassing value of your soul in the living of these days so that we might not be blinded to attachments here on earth. We come back to verse 33. Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And if you are to know and to grasp who I am as Messiah and King, then you must forsake those human demands. You must drop them. Now we know this is a lifelong struggle. We know this is not easy. He doesn't say it's easy. But it's part of what his kingdom is like. And it's part, here friends, hear me this, it's part of the richness of his kingdom. There is built into the glory of the kingdom of God a tremendous prosperity and health and welfare that comes from doing as he says and from acknowledging that I must deny myself, take up my cross, Luke says, daily, and follow him. This is a glorious pattern, a pattern which he himself blessed by himself going that way. He, the Son of God, denied himself and all of his heavenly prerogatives to come down to earth and to give himself Day by day by day, knowing that he was going to the cross, he, in a sense, bore that cross in advance and carries that message to his disciples. And all along, people don't get it. They don't want to hear him. They don't want to do as he says. If they do understand, like Peter, they just don't get it. So he is a king with a big audience of fools. They don't follow. They don't grasp the meaning. Who is this one? Who is he who is named King of the Jews? We are also told of his coming judgment, that there will be a time when the angels will come, that there is a day yet coming. Uh, verse 38, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. First prediction of his return. So don't lose your perspective, he says. All of this should be lived in the context of a future orientation. 
If our orientation is only going to be on what my plans are and what's comfortable for me and what I would like to do with my life, then this will be too hard. He's given us another resource besides the Holy Spirit. He said, I want you to think about tomorrow. I want you to view this in light of my coming judgment and and power on the earth. Don't lose your perspective. Take up your cross and follow me. But even as Jesus was doing that himself, he's praying to the Father and looking forward to the time when his work would be finished, as he said. He will one day appear as our avenger to fully restore us in spite of light and momentary troubles, as Paul writes. For even angels will one day signify his great power, which now often seems absent. So he says, I want you to think about this. There's a lot packed into this passage. I'm going to leave. He doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but we know he's going to leave the Holy Spirit with us. Jesus will soon give them a foretaste of that future glory when on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are able to see him and see him with Elijah and Moses in a glorified way, his, his, his whole body as white as snow and bright in every way, transfigured before them. There will be the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost, which also will serve as proofs that, he promises, that what he promises will happen. Everything he said we should do, he has done, and we are in the process of doing. So under application, I conclude... Our inclination to hold on to the things of this life are very strong and are harmful. Don't forget that when Peter just simply says the innocent response, we don't want you to go, and begins to rebuke him, Jesus responds in some of the harshest terms of the whole scriptures. Get thee behind me, Satan, he says. So our inclinations to hold on to things of this life are very strong and harmful. But Jesus breaks our hold on these things by issuing a sober sacrificial call to follow him and by promising future rewards. So there we have it. That's the whole story. There are no other surprises. He has laid it all out very briefly in Matthew and Mark and in response to, P- to Peter's annunciation of him as the Messiah, he said simply this, I'm leaving. Don't be dependent on my physical presence. Deny yourself. Don't be enchained by your personal appetites. Take up your cross and serve me. Give yourself to this. And don't forget, there's another day. There's another day coming when I will be triumphant and will rule. This passage is not just meant to explain who Jesus is. I believe it's there for us to understand about life. About life in the kingdom of God and about life as it may most richly be lived in this world. There's a very rich experience out there, but it includes self-denial and the the displacement of Jesus and the carrying of a cross, but it's worth it. He's calling us to something real. He's not making an abstract call to fealty to a kingdom on some future day. He's saying right now, 
Acknowledge me for who I am. Come and follow me. And it won't be easy, but it will be great. It will be wonderful and rich and prosperous and meaningful. That's who I am. That's the kind of king and messiah I am. That's what I'm calling you to. I'm not just here to answer your human concerns. And when I come to you with hardness and difficulty, I even then still come to you in grace. Because all that I have, including the carrying of my cross, and all that I have done for you is truly for you. See, Peter perversely thought that it wouldn't be for him if Jesus left. How wrong he was. And we perversely think that because he doesn't ratify our agenda that things won't go well. How wrong we are. Let him work. Let him act. Let him work out what he wants to do in your life. And then you'll know him to be not just in a Sunday school way, Jesus the Savior, but you will know him personally, the one, the Emmanuel who has been with you and gone with you from this life into the next. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, there's no way around it. You have called us to a costly discipleship. And you have said that we must endure it without your physical presence. And so we find as we look upon these things that they are very challenging and really too great for us. We would all shrink from the obligations and we would all, we would all grow tired and weary in trying to do these things. Even just the self-denial part seems impossible. And yet, by your Spirit... And by your power and word, you make it so. Work in and through each one of us this day, we pray, that we may know how wonderful you are, even through self-denial and taking up our cross. Then we can see Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.